For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, brothers Eli and Benjamin Schneider share memories of growing up in an unconventional family. Author Tom Van Dyke talks about his historical novel, A Cowboy Christmas. Find out about the upcoming Tucson Solo Theater Festival and meet Jacob Lee, a young cellist who will perform with the Moscow Ballet in Tucson. Those stories are coming up on Arizona Spotlight. The motto of the nonprofit group StoryCorps is listening is an act of love. Since 2003, thousands of people from around the world have had the opportunity to record their stories in the form of a conversation with someone they love. A team from StoryCorps is in Tucson now, and next we'll hear brothers Eli and Benjamin Schneider. So we grew up in a pretty unique family situation. Community, too. <laughs> and a unique community. Yeah. And I don't think we've ever really fully talked about it one-on-one. No, no, not at all. <laughs> um, so both of our parents were gay. We were the product of artificial insemination. Unlike most... Gabies? Yeah, gabies. That's what we call them. They're sometimes referred to. Um, children with gay parents. Uh, the parents knew they were gay before they had the children. So yeah, what was it like for you... Growing up, do you remember realizing that your family situation was different? I guess it had to happen when I was in like elementary school. Mom's partner, Anne, was in ours, my life pretty much the whole time. Unlike your situation, where you had a couple years without mom having a partner. Um, but I mean, I kept it a secret until I was in fifth grade. I never wanted to be different, you know. Or at least back then, I didn't want to be different. Now, I love embracing what we have in our community and in our family. But, you know, in elementary school, like, I sort of felt like this is my mom's best friend. That's my dad. It was hard. But also, our parents were the most active parents at our school. Which too. probably made it even harder. harder. Yeah, yeah. Like, dad would come in all the time, then Anne would drive, and then, you know, we were the only Jewish family at the school, so we had to do Hanukkah. Yeah. And all the other Jewish holidays. So that was hard. On top of having a unique family life, our parents were all very cool. Yeah, we we did have the cool... Everyone said, oh, your parents are so cool. Yeah. The cool parents. We did. And so it's not like they're something that's like in the background. They're very present. Present, yep. At at every event. Every event. And I think a lot of my friends knew something was different about our family. I don't think you could hide it. <laughs> no, not at all. I remember I when I told all my friend I told all my friends at like the same time in fifth grade. Except like my best friend knew it and his dad, you know, they all knew it. And so I told them all I was like, Yeah, you know, my mom's a lesbian, you know, and then my dad's gay. And the next day, you know, this kid said, Oh, well at least I don't have like two moms and I did punch him a couple times. Yeah. And, my best friend Sam's dad was watching, and he approved of it, which I would never do nowadays, but, yeah. you know. I don't think anyone's going to make fun of you now. For no, having... no, 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 no. <laughs> I think it's a more no. open situation. 
But yeah, I remember I was really open about it. Yeah, you didn't care at all. And I was telling all my friends, <laughs> which now I feel like we're complete opposite yeah i'm i'm always like hiding facts about my life and you're like oh this is what happened last week (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) but but yeah i was really open about it and i had a really hard time with just being a kid everyone's calling each other gay Gay. yeah faggot or whatever and i did not deal with that well and i also i don't know if you dealt with this but once i outed my parental situation to friends they were cool with it but they would have this reaction like okay your your mom's gay your dad's gay so you're gay oh did you ever deal with that i mean sort of but no i had so many friends that just came to that conclusion and then i had the friends who had weird things happen in their past or were like dealing with feelings of of homosexuality or and come to you yeah and you were like the see everyone just avoided they didn't they were like no let's not talk to eli even though i was really open about it like when i was in middle school i was more open about it but no one came up to me about that kind of stuff they were just like yeah Eli's, yeah they're yeah. worried about it you knew too much about the subject yeah they're like i don't want to know his side <laughs> of the story <laughs> um it's great to think that parents started out as friends, as fr- yeah. Instead of instead of having a divorce and then working towards towards being, yeah being friends, yeah. Well, I mean, dad worked for mom. They weren't friends for that long. They decided to have a kid like three months into it, from since he got hired. I thought it was longer than that. No, the process took a while, but they were like doing dishes together, and mom's like, "Do you want to have a like a kid ever?" And my dad's like, "Yeah, you know, I never thought I would, but like it'd right. be a cool situation." And then yeah, they're twenty nine years old. Yeah. And now the donor. They started research like that, like right after. Yeah. And they were like, let's do this. So they didn't know each other that long at all. Sort of like a spur of a moment sort of thing. And then he gets thrown into being a parent. Being a parent, yeah. Which was and he wanted to do it well too, so he let mom sort of take the rings like everything else in life. She did a great job. We have fun. You know, dad's just I just love dad. You know, we just have a blast. Just, he's like just a really, really good friend. He's always there, supportive. Yeah. I love you, dude. I love you too, Ben. This is great. This is cool. Eli and Benjamin Schneider were recorded in the StoryCorps booth at the Reed Park Zoo in Tucson. More local StoryCorps stories are available at azpm.org. Tom Van Dyke is a rancher from Carefree, Arizona, who seems like he just walked out of a John Ford movie or a painting by Frederick Remington. Van Dyke embraces the history and culture of the Southwest, and in 2009 he put a lifetime of research into those subjects to work when he wrote a book called A Cowboy Christmas, An American Tale. My boys and I were sitting around a campfire at Christmas on our ranch in Cave Creek, and They wondered what it would be like to be a cowboy 150 years ago. And that question, that that sparked my imagination to write a story so that I could fulfill that wonderment and create a story about America, about the frontier that, that I really wanted to discover on my own terms. So I just thought, what would a, a young man do? I mean, here he is alone on the edge of the Mississippi, 
looking for adventure and, and, and all of the things that we look for today, future, hope, California gold, mm-hmm. and just sat down in front of the typewriter and started writing. Do you feel that there's a lot of Tom Van Dyke in WB, or would he maybe be the young man that you wished you were when you were that age? Good question, Mark. I think a combination. I've always been involved with uh, films that involve youth, and and uh, I still think I'm a kid, and I see myself childlike. So I wanted to combine those things. I mean, maybe the perspective of, of, of age, going back and imagining myself being 15 years old, and then what would this young kid do? What would he, uh, how would he survive? I mean, you're going west, there are no trails. There's just amber waves of grain and you're gonna cross them. So I started just with this young kid who had a great attitude and found the future in front of his nose. We talked about loving Westerns when you were growing up, and you know those were fiction, and you used the word contrivances, which is a great word. But do you think that a lifetime of research went into this book in terms of knowing stuff about the Old West? When the response was so strong about people liking the book, and they asked me to write more and fill in this aspect, and what about this, and what about Jenny, his girlfriend, who it takes him years and years to find, I started researching the West and looking at 19th century volumes and, and text and journals, and I got a lot of feedback out of cookbooks. And, uh, and then I'd go to the uh, museums and look at paintings uh, of the West and Remington and Charles Russell and uh, Howard Turpening, who is the greatest living Western painter today, and he's still alive, and he's, he lives in Tucson. And I would look at old photographs, and I'd say, I know exactly what's happening in this photograph, and then I would make that story happen. So a lot of the events, a lot of the turns and twists come from observing, because I'm a visual artist. Mm -hmm. And as a visual artist, I was a painter and a sculptor. I look at words with the tint and the tone and the shade of that word that color the sentence and, and, and combine in one scene to form a paragraph. So every paragraph in this book is, is a scene as if it was in a movie. And there's always something bright or shocking or interesting in every paragraph. I didn't write to just have a punchline at the end of the chapter. I wrote to fill that, that chapter uh, as intensely as I could. What you're telling me is that you were filling in the frame of the paragraph just like you would if you were painting a canvas. Absolutely, absolutely. And it makes me now think that you're, you had trained your imagination over the years as a painter. Now you adapted that same kind of creative process to the written word. I think it would have to come that way. I've always been a creative. And by that, mean, I mean ever since I was a little boy, maybe the third or fourth grade, I was always drawing, I was always painting, I was always molding clay, I was always doing this. And I evolved as a creative. And a creative, I always liked to imagine more. I, I, I could read the words, I could see the numbers. What can I do with those numbers? What can I do with those words? How can I create something new? So my whole life, my whole career has been creative. And I think that gives me a, a perspective 
that allows me to search my imagination beyond what I know. And I think there's a lot of that in the book, the scene of him in the mine. I'm going, wow. Can you give us a taste of that now? Can you find that, that scene? Uh, I'll read you the first page of chapter six. And this is the mind story. That this is the mind story. Okay. And it's called Sparks and Fuses. Mining towns sprang up overnight and just as fast turned to dust before building a church or a jail. I roamed the gold fields working and searching for the hearts. Panned out, I decided to head for the mines and the hills. Maybe they'd be there. My job was to haul the ore carts in and out of the mines and empty the honey wagon. For a 10-hour shift, each man was given four stubby candles to light his work in the drifts and tunnels of the mine. The candles didn't last for 10 hours. So, at meal break, 25 men blew out their candles and we ate, coughing in the infinite blackness of our tomb to save wax. Having switched out an ore cart, I was lowered by lift into the throat of the mine. Creaking deeper and deeper into the pitch black hole, I lit my candle and placed it on a honey wagon. Striking the floor of the shaft and about to enter the tunnel, I heard what I thought was the sound of swarming bees. Impossible, I thought. <laughs> Dramatic, good way to end it. And, um, and just, just as, as a part, I wanted to start WB as low as I could. As low as I could. Yeah. I put him in a hole, mile and a half underground, pushing a honey wagon. That's as low as I could. And that's very Arizonan, too. <laughs> Did the experience of writing the book make you think differently about the kind of metal that these men and women on the frontier had? Absolutely. I mean, in terms of, of what I read, I mean, these were hard, hard, tough people. And I'm talking about the women. The women are amazing. And they, I also have a daughter. And I wanted to bring in the strengths and the character and the spirit of sunbonnets. You know, we hear a lot about the sombreros and their macho-ness and their toughness and everything, but I'll tell you what, I think it's the courage and perseverance of the sunbonnets that really tamed the West. Not everyone's wagon made it across the vast prairie. At a point of no turning back, I passed a family downloading a heavy rosewood sideboard from their wagon to lighten their load. I stopped to help them. Admiring the beautiful family heirloom, mother ran her hand over the dusty top, revealing the craftsmanship and fine polished finish. She smiled with a distant gaze, realizing memories in a time past. With a deep breath, and as if she had suddenly remembered a forgotten chore, she turned quickly and returned to the wagon. I watched as she stretched her boot to climb the wooden spokes. Pulling herself up, hand over hand, she pushed off the hub to the top of the wheel and crossed over to take her place on the wooden seat of the wagon. Gripping the reins, her hands were cracked and calloused. Her beauty, once bright and obvious, now of fewer years than thirty, was fading with hardship and toil. Her lips were blistered and her fair skin parched, scrubbed by the wind, sun, and alkaline water. 
Her striking eyes, the color of the ocean, were hardened with resolve in a steady gaze that left me with no doubt that with all the six-gun bravado and strength of the sombreros, the settlement of this hostile frontier would be carved out by the steadfast determination and courage of sunbonnets. Tom Van Dyke read from his book, A Cowboy Christmas, An American Tale. Stay tuned for more Arizona Spotlight after this break. A student in the 1960s meets her first gay friend. An actor interprets true stories about the role that guns play in American culture. And a performer from England brings traditional Christmas stories to life. These are some of the topics featured in the first Tucson Solo Theater Festival. The organizer is a former New York City playwright who's exploring new possibilities in Southern Arizona. The festival will be Monica Bauer's first major project since moving to Tucson earlier this year. And Tony Paniagua has an interview. Monica Bauer, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. What brought you to Tucson, Arizona? We wanted to be in a place that had a vibrant artistic community where we'd feel at home and also a cost of living that we could we could survive in and not starve to death. So uh, Tucson is all of that, plus the wonderful weather, plus the great people. So we're very happy we're here. And you moved here in July of 2015. Must have been balmy for you when you arrived. It was so much fun. Uh, yes, we just, just plunged right into the worst summer ever. But we still love the mountains, and we love the people, and we love the sky. And you are putting on a show or different shows that are occurring uh, beginning December 29th. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yes, I'm the producer of the first annual, we hope, Tucson Solo Theater Festival. And what that means is we're bringing in actors who have already done their solo shows, meaning it's one actor on stage. And they've done it at places like the Edinburgh Fringe, where I've been twice, and at New York's Off Off Broadway, where I'm a sort of a veteran. And these are all shows that I've seen, shows that I love, artists that I think are fantastic, and they're all coming in uh, to be here in Tucson to share their talent with you all. So how does a solo performance work, and what does it entail? Well, a solo performance just means one actor and not a lot of set and not a lot of scenery and not a lot of, of technical lighting. So you can just come in and have a show, and you don't have to rehearse it for two weeks. You can just come right on into Tucson and do your show. So that makes it affordable and easy for me to bring in people from all over the country to come to Tucson for this one week from uh, December 29th to January 3rd. And this is really... Uh a personal effort because you are actually finding places for these people to stay in during their visit to Tucson. Oh, yeah. We have wonderful volunteers here in Tucson. And if you like us on Facebook, you'll see that we have a volunteer of the day from Tucson that we uh, we lift up and thank because people are putting up artists from all over the world in their homes so that they can come and stay and we can afford to bring them. So we have New York City, Los Angeles, Dallas, London, and Tucson? Yes, we have one show with a local Tucson actor. Clark Ray is doing The Gun Show. The Gun Show is a hot, hot new show written by Ellen Lewis. She writes as E.M. Lewis. Terrific playwright. This has been in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago and Berkeley, California. Most recently, it's a great show about gun violence in America. So we really want people to come and see that. That'll be on at 8.30 every night of the festival. 
And you are a playwright, but you yourself are performing one of these shows as well, right? I am. I'm doing a personal story called The Year I Was Gifted, and I'm doing it in part uh, in uh, about the friendship I had with my first gay friend. And that's tied into a film that they're doing at the Loft Cinema. So the Loft is our co-sponsor. So what's it been like for you to live in Tucson, Arizona, after having lived in the New York City metropolitan area, by extension, Connecticut? And what's it been like as far as the art world or the world of actors and playwrights? Uh, has it been difficult for you or have you adapted quite well? I'm excited by all the talent here in Tucson. Uh, we have wonderful people, uh, Clark Andreas Ray and Maria Capriel is directing the gun show and she's local. We've just loved the whole theater community here. We love the Rogue. We love Winding Road. We love all the theater here. So you've got a lot of people to be proud of here. So there is theater here in Tucson. There's great theater. And we just wanted to bring something new and different. I wanted to sort of bring a little gift to Tucson, my new home. And the Tucson Solo Theater Festival is that gift. And it's going to be held from December 29th to January 3rd. Where can people get more information? Please go to our website, which is TucsonSoloTheaterFestival.com. That's theater with an E-R. TucsonSoloTheaterFestival.com. And you can like us on Facebook and friend us on Facebook. All right. And then what's next in your life? Uh, March in New York City again? I'll be in New York City in March for the new play. And before that, I'll be in the Tucson Fringe with two plays. So uh, I'm just all over Tucson. We just love it. You're staying busy. I am. You can find information about the Solo Theater Festival's events on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. When the Moscow Ballet visits Tucson next week, its performance will feature a special guest. Jacob Lee is a junior at University High School who's been playing cello since he was eight years old, not long after his family came to the United States from South Korea. Jacob says he chose the instrument because of its size and range, and earlier this year his talent was recognized by the Moscow Ballet when he was chosen to play an important solo in the Nutcracker. I think I've grown to really like playing this instrument because my teacher has really show me what this instrument is capable of. So whenever I'm playing for any performance, I just I just feel so great playing the cello, and it really has become a passion that I really would like to pursue. So you were a pretty small kid when you came to the States. Yeah. Um, where does your family hail from? Um, they're from Korea, and they were born in the city of Gwangju, and I came here when I was about six. Do you have a, an early memory, though, of the difference and, and something that really made an impression impression on you as being America? Yes. Uh, when, I first, when I first came here, it, it, it was really a lot of pressure for me and my family. Um, it was hard to adjust the school system of America and in Korea because Korea, it was more strict. And America, I had to... Uh, pick up English really quickly and try to adjust to their culture, which is a difficult time. Tell us about the piece of music that you'll be playing with the Moscow Ballet. So the piece that I'm going to be playing is The Swan and it's composed by Camille Saint-Saëns. And it's, I'm, I'm pretty excited to play this piece because it's, this is the cello solo of, that the composer specifically wrote. And I think it's going to go well with 
playing it for the opening of the Moscow Ballet with a principal ballerina, which is going to be cool because I never got to play a music with a dancer. So that'd be a great experience. this particular section of the music is saying, or maybe you can tell me what you're trying to say when you play it on the cello. I think this music is just trying to portray this, this beautiful person just by showing elegance, by showing gracefulness and beauty. I think, and I think the cello is great to uh, present that by playing beautifully. That's what I try. That's what I try to play. Does playing in front of a large crowd make you nervous? And if so, how do you deal with performance pressure? Hmm, that's a good question. So when I first played uh, a performance, it was for a recital for my private teacher, and I looked at others. When I got up there, I realized how how much pressure people have on me, and and what I learned over the years is to just take a deep breath and really just focus on the music and focus on how you are up there to please the crowd and to show them your music. And that, and I think that's really helped me get over my nervousness. <laughs> what would you say is your steady gig um, here in town? What group do you play with? I play with the Tucson Philharmonia Youth Orchestra here. And it's a great program because the orchestra director, Dr. Batten, really shows the youth, the high school and middle school, what a professional orchestra is like. And we all, we have rehearsals every Saturday, and she really coaches us on how to play the professional music. Is it with that group where you were first introduced to playing the Sansan's music that you're playing with the Moscow Ballet? Yes, but I originally didn't play it. It was. It was someone else that played the piece, and I I played the accompanying part. But yeah, the first chair cellist. Yes, played the first the solo. chair played it. Yeah. yeah, and did you think oh, I want to do that? Yes, he <laughs> he was so good, and uh, the first chair really I known him in high school, and I think he was also a big factor in why I want to pursue this because he's been playing for years, and he's really shown how to play music. And it's just inspiring to me. The Moscow Ballet presents The Great Russian Nutcracker with guest soloist Jacob Lee, Tuesday at Centennial Hall, with performances at 3 and 7 p.m. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>